Well, this morning we want to talk about the first council of the Ecclesia, or the first church council. It happened in about 48 AD, and there wasn't another church council until 300 years later. So for 300 years, the first 300 years of Christianity, this was the only church council that was conducted, and that was because of the persecuted environment. So we'll be looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 29. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles and open your hearts to hear what, uh, what Scripture has to tell us about this great council and the conclusion of this council. First, some introduction. All humans are created beings and are therefore defined by and subject to the Creator, whether they know it or not. Consequently, there's only one correct worldview, and that is Christianity. Now, the Creator condescended to create the universe and reveal himself to his creatures. Now, I'm using the word condescending, not in a pejorative sense, but in a sense of, of bending down or stooping. He did not have to create anything. He chose to create. And in many ways, it's beneath him in the sense of his omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, eternal power, being, all of the wonderful attributes of the creator to create a material universe was a condescension on his part. And theologians talk about this as an attribute of God is his condescension. So when I use the term condescension, I'm not using it in a negative sense at all. I'm using reference to how much greater he is than his creation. So what we have with the creation then is a revelation it's a revelation of something about the character and nature of God. It's not a complete revelation. And God has chosen, he's condescended to give us also a written revelation. So those are the two ways, primary ways, that we have knowledge of who he is. So the process of God revealing God's truth through scripture requires the interpretation of scripture. And in the first 14 chapters of Acts, the Holy Spirit illuminates the Old Testament in a way that had never been illuminated before. Because the revelation that Jesus is Lord in Christ now unlocked the understanding of the Old Testament in the first century like it had never been unlocked before. In many ways, the truth about Christ and God had been veiled in the Old Testament scripture. So they saw just a bit of it. But now with the revelation about who Jesus was, that is, Lord in Christ, we have a deeper, more profound revelation of Old Testament Scripture. Scripture is divided into the Old and New Testament, and to understand the relationship between these two parts requires progressive revelation from the Creator. For example, the early New Testament ecclesia struggled to understand the inclusivity of the ethnic groups. Now, Scripture uses the word ethnos. So I'm going to use the word ethnos today in this teaching because that speaks of all ethnicities. Uh, we have a misnomer that's going on uh, really commonly in the culture today, uh, which is called racist, racism or racist, as if there's multiple races. Well, Act 17 makes it clear there's one human race. So we want to be biblical in our thinking. So we have one race, but multiple ethnicities. The ethnicities go back to the Tower of Babel and the judgment on, on the world for the sin of mankind that was displayed at the Tower of Babel incident. And that sin was the desire to be humanist, the desire to self-glory, the desire to do things according 
to our will, utilizing God's ways according to our will to accomplish our glory. So that's what God judged. And the way it was judged was the multiple languages and the multiple language has led to the multiple ethnicities. By the time of the first New Testament council, which was approximately 48 AD, the best that we can tell, the inclusivity of all ethnic groups was largely understood. Now, it should have been understood from Genesis 12, verse 3, which is where the Abrahamic covenant was given. And it was clear that God was going to bless all ethnic groups through Abraham. But yet, it wasn't all that clear to the Old Testament uh, people of God. They weren't that focused on that. But now, by this point, the development of the New Testament ecclesia, they're beginning to get pretty clear on that. And they're largely accepting that. But there's still questions, and the question is the relationship of the Mosaic law and the sacrament of circumcision. How does that relate to the ethnos, that is the Gentiles, who are professing faith in Christ and are now wanting to be part of the New Testament ecclesia? Can they be part of the New Testament ecclesia? On what basis? Do they have to obey the law of Moses? Do they have to be circumcised? So that was the big question. So the purpose of this first council of, for, of the New Testament ecclesia was to clarify this issue. So those who gathered in Jerusalem to determine this matter were the fathers of the New Testament ecclesia. That is the original apostles and the elders of the first local expression of the New Testament ecclesia in Jerusalem. The conclusion of this gathering helped to clarify the truth about the gospel of the grace of Christ and its relationship with the Mosaic law and the sacrament of circumcision. So let's take a look at this text, and mostly we'll be reading through the, the first 29 verses here uh, with some comments as we go along. So beginning in verse 1, the topic that I, for the first six verses, I've called it dispute in Antioch. Some men came down from Judea. Now let me be quick to say these men, according to verse 24, were not sent. So these were not commissioned men. These were self-commissioned men. These were men who were acting in presumption and pride and were their own authority. So they are the, you could say these were orphans from the community. It's interesting how we can have orphans in the Christian community, but they were orphans. They came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers false doctrine. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot and that word cannot there comes from uh, dunamai. Uh, dunamai is the word for power. Uh, when it says you cannot, it does not mean you don't have permission. It means you don't have the power to be saved. Now, we know that that is not correct because the power for salvation doesn't come from what we do. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But they're, they're confused. They're creating chaos. And this is what self-commissioned people do is they are confused and they create chaos. So unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious, and this word serious is very interesting. It's a, it's a word that means no small matter. Um, it's a very serious conversation. It's a serious argument and debate or question. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed. Now you see commissioning coming into play. Paul and Barnabas were not self-commissioned. 
they were appointed along with others to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem were clearly the senior authority figures in the ecclesia at that time and to find out about this issue. Let's resolve this. So when they'd been sent on their way by the ecclesia, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. And as they went, they were describing in detail the conversion of the, the ethnics group, the ethnos, the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the, the church, the ecclesia, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Now, this is Paul and Barnabas largely sharing the experiences that they had, particularly on that first apostolic trip recorded in Acts 13 and 14. But some of the believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees, this was a sect, this was a, se a segment of the people who claimed to be part of the ecclesia, stood up and they said, they spoke with great strength, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, so you, what, you see what they're doing here is they're projecting that salvation, salvation from the penalty of sin and death is affected through grace plus works. That's what they're offering. Now, that happens to be the Roman Catholic doctrine today. And frankly, it's what most people believe today anyway. Even among the Protestants, they still, many of them believe this in different forms. They may not be saying the works of the sacrament of circumcision or obedience to the Mosaic law, but they're talking about their own works. I uh, was watching a, a video of a very famous golfer here recently, uh, a man that really made himself a name. He came from very humble beginnings. He actually came from the Dallas area. I actually met him when I was I was a teenager. He was a few years older than me, but I remember meeting him. And I at I was on the golf team in high school, and he was, uh, like I said, older. So he was playing at another level than me, but I had a chance to watch him. I knew he was very good, but he eventually made it on the professional tour and eventually became one of the, the top five or six golfers in the world. So he, he really made a name for himself in that sense. And he's talking about... <clears throat> At the end of his life, he's now approaching 80, and he's reflecting on his life, and he's com his comment was how he had done as much as he could with what he had, and he hoped that the Lord would remember that. So he had his own paradigm of works going there. We have to be very clear. As we go through this text here, we're going to see that salvation is affected not by grace plus works but by grace alone. But you're also going to see in this text that they didn't fully understand it yet. In fact, that doesn't become crystal clear until Paul in the book of Galatians in chapter one is extremely clear. There is no equivocation there that salvation is by grace, period. So there's a process that the first ecclesia was in to really get clear and to get free from thinking that in some way salvation was grace plus some works that you had to do. Nevertheless, this is the journey they're on to gain that clarity. So this is a journey of incrementalism. As we go through this, you're going to see they're going to make a step toward full grace, but they won't fully get there in this conference, but they will in time. All right, going on to verse 7. 
Now, the first person to speak that's recorded here by Luke is Peter. And Peter's going to share his experience. So let's see what he has to say. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles, the ethnos, would hear the gospel message and believe. You see, faith is a response to the gospel message. We are all born dead in trespasses and sins. Without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to bring us to life, we cannot express faith. So when we are regenerated and now we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's when we can express faith. So faith is a response to what the Holy Spirit does in us, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 9, that faith is not a work. It's not a work in the sense that it does not come from human power. It comes from divine power in us. A way to think about this is like when a baby's born. When a baby's born, they come out of the womb and they begin to wiggle, they cry, they eat, they poop, they sleep, they do all these different things None of those things make them alive. The things they do reveal life is in them. That's the same way with faith. When you see somebody expressing genuine faith, which means transformed living, more aligned with God, that's what faith looks like. What that is, a response to the power of God at work in them. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In other words, there are, he's referring back to Cornelius, the incident Cornelius' home where Peter is there. He doesn't really understand why he's there, and the circumstances with him getting there are kind of mysterious to Peter, but he's there and he's sharing the message of Christ, that Jesus is Lord in Christ. While he's sharing, he does not give an invitation he does not give anything that we call a gospel message. He's just sharing about the history of what's happened. And all of a sudden, these people break out speaking in tongues. And so Peter and his entourage that are with him recognize immediately, wow, that is the Holy Spirit on them. So they realize that they received the Holy Spirit just like the people on the day of Pentecost and the days afterwards. So the Jews had received it in Acts 2 and Acts 10. Now the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. So that's the testimony he's giving them. There's no distinction between us and them. There is a cleansing of the hearts by faith. The Holy Spirit comes in and cleanses our heart, breaks us part of the family of God. We are positionally in Christ, and now we have the capacity to express faith. Verse 10, now then, <clears throat> why are you testing God? by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither we nor our ancestors nor we were able to bear. Now, this is a really important point because he's saying to them, hey, you guys, you should have learned from the Old Testament that the Jews never succeeded in obeying the law, ever. And why are you now trying to impose on the Gentiles, the ethnos, the requirement that they obey the law when we couldn't do it? Don't you realize how how illogical that is. So that's a really powerful point he's making there that should just really cause them to really freeze and stop. 
Then he goes on to verse 11. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. How, what an interesting way to say this. He's saying, clearly, Cornelius and those in his home were saved. I saw it. We, my, all these, my colleagues can bear witness to this. And we Jews are saved just like them. It's not that we have to make the Gentiles become like the Jews. No, no. We Jews need to be like the Gentiles where we're saved by grace and grace alone. There is no works involved. So it's a powerful argument he's making here. All right, well, that's not persuasive enough. So the next person to speak will be Paul and Barnabas. So in Acts 15, verse 12, it's interesting. They don't get much time here. They have a very short uh, record of what was said. I'm sure there was much more said, but the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through the Gentiles, through the ethnos. So clearly they would go back and talk about Elamas, the sorcerer on Cyprus. They talk about healing the lime man in Lystra. They talk about Paul being stoned and thought he was dead in Lystra, but yet God raised him from the dead. Uh, they would talk about those supernatural signs and wonders. So they're just sharing their experience, this empirical evidence. But what really has authority with the Jews and what should really have authority with us as well is the word of God. So the third person now to speak is James. Now, it could be this was this this was not James, one of the senior. There was two James that were part of the 12. There was James, the brother of John. Now, we believe that James was, was martyred in Acts 12. So if Acts 12 was indeed chronologically prior to Acts 15, James is dead. But there was a second James that was part of the, uh, the original 12. And there was a, a Jesus had a younger brother named James. So we're not totally sure who this James is. But most believe that it was probably the brother of Jesus. So reading in verse 13, after Paul and Barnabas stopped speaking, James responded. Now, James was not only probably the brother of Jesus, but he's also functioning here as the convening officer of this council. So he's been listening to Peter, and to Paul and Barnabas, and now he's going to respond as if he's going to summarize the discussion and he's going to add to it. He says, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, that's referring to Peter, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. That's Cornelius. That's the story of Cornelius. And the words of the prophets agree. Now, that's such an interesting way that he expresses this. He uses the word symphoneo. Now, that you hopefully hear your symphony in that. That's the English word symphony. What he's saying here is all of the, the words of the prophets are in harmony. There's an equal yoking of the prophetic message agreeing with this truth that Jesus is Lord of all and all of the ethnicities would be blessed with the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ. So all the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. And now he's going to cite the book of Amos, verses nine, verse two, uh, chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. Now, Amos was written about 750 B.C., best we can tell. 
Now, Amos is going to talk prophetically about a restoration. Well, the captivity of Israel for their sin, the consequence of their sin, did not happen until about 200 years after Amos wrote. So part of what Amos writes about is going to be fulfilled in the restoration that happened in about 520 A.D. So some 250 or so years after Amos wrote. But there's another part uh, that will be fulfilled when Christ came, some, you know, 700 years like after Amos wrote. So this is a very prophetic text. It's um, Amos is considered to be one of the oldest of what's called the minor prophets. The minor prophets are not minor in the sense of significance. They're just minor in the sense of length. They're not as long as the of the other prophets. So minor prophets means are just shorter, shorter words, shorter books. So Amos says this, after these things, verse 16, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That's imagery for the kingdom of God. He says, I will re rebuild its ruins and set it up again. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the ethnos, the Gentiles, who are called by my name. This is Old Testament prophet saying that, that the rest of humanity, all the ethnic groups, they will be blessed. That's what's going to happen in the future. But he doesn't give you the details. What, what Paul is, or what uh, James is doing here is saying what we are experiencing today in the first century, it was prophesied almost you know, 750 years ago. And we, we give credibility. We believe the scripture. So this, one, this is what really gives the argument power, is the word of God predicts what we're seeing and living in here in the first century. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even the Gentiles will seek the Lord because they're called by, by his name. Declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So that's the quote from Amos. Now James goes back and continues. Here he's going to write, he's going to give a summary. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the ethnos who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that was strangled, and from blood. So he's basically, he's offering to the council, you know, a kind of a compromise. Instead of going full-blown, grace totally, let's make a suggestion. It's grace plus we suggest that you don't do these things. It's not grace, but we require you not to do these things. It's the suggesting. So instead, we should write to them to abstain. They should do this. This is good. This would be wise. Now, in time, as I mentioned in Galatians, the Apostle Paul would make it very clear, salvation is by grace alone. There is no other, there's no other way. Grace alone works do not play into the entrance into the salvation process. Doesn't that's the regeneration. It doesn't play into the exit, which is the saint the glorification at the end. But in the middle, uh, we have some responsibility. This is one of the mysteries we have, the responsibility to obey Christ. But that that power to obey Christ comes from the Holy Spirit. So this is why the reformers talk about salvation by grace through faith alone.
For since ancient times, verse 21, Moses has been proclaimed in every city and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Now, that's very interesting. It's almost like, well, why did you make this statement, James? What were you trying to say with this? You made your point. You offered your compromise. You got it in front of them. I think he wanted to make it clear to remind them that the truth that Amos said about how all the ethnicities would be blessed, okay, was part of the Old Testament, which is read every Sabbath in, in the synagogues in every city. Now, does this literally mean every city? Uh, probably it's more hyperbole uh, because not every city had a, had a synagogue, but a vast majority of the larger cities did have a synagogue, and the synagogues were established after, this, after the dispersion of Israel, which is the judgment of God on their sin, and the synagogues were established as a way to continue to propagate the truth of the Jewish heritage with these people who were dispersed. So God redemptively used the judgment on Israel as a way to get his word out to all the ethnicities. It's very interesting to see how God redeems sin. He always is working all things together for good. Even when we're rebellious and rejecting God and disobedient, he's working to use that in some way redemptively. So I think that's what he's saying here is God was at work. His word was going out. Even though Israel failed as the people of God, they failed because they were totally depraved and failed to recognize that the word of God still went out through them. All right, so the recommendation has been made. So how will the council respond? Well, let's take a look at this. They decide to put together a letter. So the apostles and the elders with the whole church decide to select men who are among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they chose Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. It turns out that uh, Barsabbas, uh, this is the only time he shows up in Scripture, but Silas will become a traveling companion with Paul later. So these are, these are men that are sent along to carry this letter and to testify orally. So the, the church at Antioch will receive the letter, and they'll have Paul and Barnabas, who will carry it, and they'll have Barsabbas and Silas there as additional witnesses saying, yes, what the letter is in the letter is what the apostles and elders have written. So let's see what they said here. For the, from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out, that's how we know that the people who went to Antioch were, were self-commissioned. They were not commissioned by the church leaders to do what they did. So since we heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas, which is Barsabbas, and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. In other words, they're going to tell you. They're going to, they're going to reinforce what we're writing. Here's what they said. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision. You see, they, 
firmly believed that as a council, they were there to discern the mind of the Lord. And they believe they came come together with that. So they are attributing this decision to the Holy Spirit, and they're saying it's ours as well. We're agreeing on this, not to place any further burdens on you beyond these requirements. So he's got it's 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 grace, you know, kind of slightly modified. And like I said in the end, this these modifications will fade away because salvation is by grace. It's so interesting to see scripture records what actually happens. Remember, as you interpret scripture, scripture is always factually true in the sense that it describes truth in whatever form it is. If it's poetry, it can be very symbolic. Uh, If it's apocryphal, it can be very, again, a lot of imagery, or it can be history, which can be very literal. So scripture is always descriptive. Sometimes it is prescriptive. Prescriptive means that it's authoritative for our practice. This is more description. The prescription prescription for the gospel message is given more in Galatians 1, which is Paul's epistle where he is clarifying the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond their four requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, you abstain from blood, you abstain from eating anything that's been strangled, that is, when the life is removed without the blood being removed, okay, and from sexual immorality. Now, all of these happen to be Old Testament prohibitions. So he has retained these four prohibitions as being kind of the ones that we want to put some put some emphasis on. And you will do well if you keep yourself from these things. You notice how he says that you will do well. It's like, I'm not really commanding you to do this. I'm just suggesting. So that's how we know it's more of a suggestion. In the end, what we're going to come to as we deal with these these issues is much more clarity from the Apostle Paul. But right now, this is a big step forward to be able to say, no, the ethnic ethnic groups do not have to be circumcised and become Jews. They do not have to obey the law, the law of Moses, which we couldn't do ourselves. We Jews couldn't do. So take that out of there. But we've got four little stipulations we want to put on them. All right, let's talk a little theology here. We'll continue talking about the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the gospel is not the gospel of salvation. It's not the gospel of prosperity. It's not the gospel of of missions and evangelism. It is the gospel of the kingdom. So what is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed? Since the advent of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom of God has been progressively revealed. So to understand this gospel, one must understand the bad news first. You can't understand the good news until you understand the bad bad news. The bad news is this. Mankind is totally depraved, totally unable to meet God's righteous standards perfectly. That was the big message of the Old Testament. It was hard to understand. This is what Jesus' uh, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus was all about. Nicodemus did not understand this. So Jesus was shocked. How could you be an Old Testament scholar and not understand total depravity? You should have understood this. So 
understanding the the bad news is very important. We all many times offer the good news without explaining the bad news. And I, I suggest that that's probably not a great way to do it. We need to offer the bad news, help people see it. Instinctively, they do see something of the bad news. We may need to clarify it and help them understand it more clearly. Then you can offer them the good news. The good news is that with the advent of Jesus, God is executing his plan of redemption, whereby God would do for man what man could never do for himself or herself. The historical context of the plan of redemption focused on Israel, the Old Testament ecclesia, the people of God. They were under the Mosaic law as a means of self-salvation. But they were doomed to failure because their innate condition was totally depraved. They were unable to perfectly obey the law of God. In the Old Testament, the meta narrative revealed the depth of human sin. But in the New Testament, the meta narrative shifted to the remedy of sin, the personal work of Jesus and salvation, and the establishment of a New Testament ecclesia based on now spiritually empowered people, spiritually redeemed people. All of this is prophetically predicted in the Old Testament. We saw a glimpse of that with the quote from Amos. The advent of Christ marked a transition from the old to the new covenant. The New Testament ecclesia was unveiled in Acts. There was confusion about the composition of an entrance into this ecclesia. We've seen that. And the question was about first was the ethnos, the ethnic group, would they be part of the New Testament ecclesia? We discovered by Acts 10, the answer is yes. And if so, would they be required to comply with the sacrament of circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law? And now we're seeing the church councils come to the conclusion, no, that's not necessary, but we've got a little accommodation to that. And scripture from Amos makes it very, very clear that God intends to execute something new, something different, something that the Old Testament people didn't really experience. The first council of New Testament ecclesia confirmed the inclusivity of the ethnos. Furthermore, the ethnos would not have to comply with the sacrament of circumcision or obey the law of Moses. Case closed, so it seemed. But the Jerusalem council left that lingering connection to the law, a compromise, a, you could say, an incremental step toward complete grace. Beyond the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the leaders of the New Testament Ecclesia proposed four obligations, probably more suggestions, abstinence from food offered to idols, abstinence from blood, abstinence from eating anything strangled, and abstinence from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual contact outside the covenant of marriage, period. And marriage is a man and a woman, period. So biblical sexual ethics are very, very clear. And that's what he's talking about here. As noble as this may be, these obligations are not supported by the New Testament epistles, as I've mentioned several times, trying to be sure you get that, that their conclusion here is not as unequivocal as it, as it could be, but it was what they could do at the time. That's why you see incrementalism here at work. The Apostle Paul was very clear in his writings, Ephesians 2, Galatians 1, that any gospel not unequivocally based on the grace of Christ is a false gospel. Over time, the New Testament Ecclesia understood the essence of salvation with much more clarity. 
The essence of Christian soteriology was expressed perhaps most succinctly by the reformers in the 16th century. They came up with this description. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, through scripture alone, and for God's glory alone. And that's probably the most succinct summary of the soteri- of soteriology that you could put together. That's sometimes called the doctrines of grace for those of you that are familiar with that terminology. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the role of a spiritual father. Uh, I think there's such a great picture here for all of us to see. Uh, spiritual fathers are absolutely essential if we're going to live um, commissioned lives. If you don't have a father, and when I'm using the word father generically, a father or mother, if you don't have fathers and or mothers or both in your life guiding you, you're an orphan. You are self-commissioned. You are trying to self-save, and that will not go well. Saul of Tarsus was a zealous follower of Jehovah. He was an avid student of Old Testament scripture. So he studied under the, one of the most respected theologians of the day, Gamaliel. Saul's zeal for his faith before being intercepted by Jesus was expressed by his commitment to persecuting followers of Jesus. For Saul, these people turned from Judaism and were therefore heretics. Saul led the persecution of the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. His persecution was extended beyond Samaria into the region of Syria and Damascus, specifically the city of Damascus, which is located about 220 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, that would be about a seven-day journey by foot. So Saul is sent on this long journey to go arrest people who are denying Judaism and embracing Christ. They were followers of what was called the way. There was an unexpected and an uninvited encounter with Jesus along the way that transformed Paul's life. It turned him into a man without a person, without people. For those who sent him to persecute the New Testament ecclesia, he became a traitor. And for the New Testament ecclesia, his conversion experience was questioned. Is this guy for real? I mean, he's the most serious opponent we've had. He's the most serious persecutor of the church. And you're telling us now he's one of us. So there was a question there. So he's a person without a people. Nobody wants to claim Paul anymore. So he was, uh, he needed a friend somewhere, somehow Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, part of the Jewish dysphoria and a person who was at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and became part of the first community of Christians, this Barnabas found Saul. I don't know how. Scripture doesn't tell us how. But he apparently went to Damascus. Remember, this is about 200 miles away from Jerusalem. He befriends Paul. And after Paul's conversion to Christianity, Barnabas met Saul and became his spiritual father in the Christian faith. Barnabas spent time with Saul in Damascus, then accompanied him to Jerusalem at least twice, where he met the original apostles, and Barnabas vouched for the genuineness of Saul's conversion. I guess he got to know him well enough to be convinced that he truly had met the Lord. After Paul's initial 14 years as a Christian, while he's still in Jerusalem, his life was threatened. So he was sent home. He stayed in Tarsus for some time. This zealous crusader appeared to be stuck in his hometown 
perhaps bemoaning his fate and wondering if the Lord would ever use him. Maybe he felt forgotten. He felt abandoned. I don't know what he, what he felt like. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Sometime later, the news of work, the work of the Lord <clears throat> broke out in Antioch and Jerusalem heard about it. So they sent up Barnabas. Barnabas uh, went up to Antioch and he saw for his, himself that there was indeed the work of the Spirit happening in that place. People were coming to Christ and being transformed. And he recognized that there was a call now in his life to, to support what the Holy Spirit was doing in that place. But he also recognized that the work uh, that, that was needed there needed more people. So he set out on a hunt for Saul. Now, Tarsus was about 200 miles away from Antioch. So he's going to go on another long journey to try to find, find Saul of Tarsus. He finds him. They both come back to Antioch, and there they work together for a year, a year teaching the word of God and discipling people in Antioch. Then the Holy Spirit sends them out on a mission, on a journey, first to Cyprus and then up into Turkey to, to continue to propagate the message of Christ. See, Paul is an example of a man here who was guided and directed by his fathers, both before and after his encounter with Christ. I mean, even before his encounter, he, was, he did not function in his role as the chief persecutor of Christ by himself. He was not self-commissioned. He was guided by the spiritual fathers, the Jewish fathers. And then when he became, came to Christ, he was guided by a spiritual father, mainly Barnabas. And Barnabas even risked his own reputation to support the purpose of God in Saul. And Paul was humble and submitted and teachable to Barnabas. Now, this is the only profound way to live. By default, all of us will seek to live in the sin of self-commissioning. All of us will sin to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. And we have to say no to that. We have to be humble, submitted, and teachable if we're going to live aligned with the will and ways of God. And that means living aligned with the direction and guidance of commissioning agents that God puts over us. Someone recently asked me about my life. They asked me how I, how I got to where I am in life and doing what I'm doing in life. I pondered this for a moment and I realized very quickly that the answer, my life has been shaped by fathers, my biological father and my spiritual fathers. I've had four spiritual fathers and a biological father. My life is not the confluence of my own decisions rooted in orphanity. Rather, my life was sovereignly orchestrated by the Holy Spirit through fathers. And even today, as I'm approaching the end of life, I still think a lot about what my fathers have taught me, what they directed me to do, what they saw of God in me, and what they wanted me to focus on, where I seem to have favor. I reflect on that a lot. None of my fathers were perfect but each one added to what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through me. And my natural father and spiritual fathers were the shaping tools used by the Holy Spirit to guide me into alignment with his will and his ways. In whatever level I'm able to do that, it's come from them. It's not been me. It's never been me. So I'm just grateful and thankful. I cannot say thank you enough. I cannot be 
grateful enough. I cannot be joyful enough for what God has done for me. And I feel like that the Lord has given me a taste of how he wants us to live, living submitted to fathers and mothers in the Lord to guide and direct us and commission us into our assignments, doing work that we're commissioned to do, not work that we decide we want to do. It's only the work that God has called us to that we should do. So may we have the grace to learn to do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.